Um, so like I said, my name is Rachel. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, I would love to meet you. I really would. Um, this is awesome. I have to say, I have done most of my time sitting in the seats that you are sitting in tonight. Um, I spent four years at OSU and almost every Thursday night in one of these black chairs. So shout out to the black chairs. Um, I spent a lot of time in the house, actually. So this actually used to happen inside the house. And then it was like we were breaking fire codes, and so we had to come out here, and COVID. Um, so now we're outside and enjoying some awesome fall weather. So I'm really glad that you guys are here. Um, we have been walking through the past couple of weeks encounters of the Apostle Peter with Jesus of Nazareth. So we've been in different, different places. We talked about Peter uh, when his name was changed from Simon to Peter. We talked about when Peter walks on water with Jesus. Pretty wild. Alec also tried it and was unsuccessful. So, um, tough. He's not that cool. Um, <laughs> we talked about when Peter makes this great confession about who Jesus is as the promised Messiah. And then how he flips kind of this crazy story happens um, where Jesus actually rebukes him pretty strongly. Um, and so Peter is kind of this character who's characterized a lot by these ups and downs. These, he seems like a very passionate guy. Um, but he was an eyewitness to Jesus's life and Jesus's work, um, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And so we've been building up to jumping into a letter that Peter wrote. Um, so after Jesus ascended, the church forms in Acts, and Peter writes this letter a little bit later on to these different churches. And it's called, you guessed it, First Peter. So I don't know if Peter wrote another letter, probably not, so this is the first one. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First Peter. That's where we'll be jumping in tonight. So before we just start reading, um, one thing I want us to remember and to think about um, is how we approach the Word of God. So there's two, not only two things, but two primary things that we believe about the Word of God, the Bible. We believe, one, that it is true. Not like most of it's true, but like historically there's things that's like, eh, and that's not true. Not true in the sense of like, it has some like good things to say about like how to live my life. But true in the sense that all of it is true. The second thing we believe is that the Bible is from God. I call it the word of God, and that means that it has power. Um, this isn't just like a guy named Peter's thoughts on life. Um, it's not the same as Gandhi having some good ideas about society. We believe that this is from God. And so when we have those things together, we have that it's true and that it is from God that it has power. We believe that then truth plus power equals authority. So when we come to the Word of God to read a text, we actually believe that we sit underneath the text. That is, we submit to the text. So that means that when we come to the text, we have to come with a humility. And I've heard humility referred to as a readiness to obey. Um, and that is the posture that I want to have as we come to this text. So when we intro a book, as I've never introed one, there's several ways to do it, I've heard. Um, I could give you a lot of background about who the author is, I kind of already gave that away, um, who the audience is, all these different things, and we need to know those things because you can't just pick something up and start reading it and then just apply it to your life. 
That's not how the Bible works. We need to ask questions of the text. But this passage and this book actually answers a lot of questions that we should be asking whenever we open a text in the text. It, it answers those. So we're going to start reading the text. We're going to start in 1 Peter 1, verse, verse 1. So we'll pace through this a little bit. We'll stop and talk about things kind of as we go along. So if you're with me, 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, pause. We're not going to go this slow all the time. Uh, I know I only read like half a sentence. But here's, here's the first thing. We know who wrote this book. We know that it is the apostle Peter. He identifies himself that way. And like we said, this is Simon Peter. He's one of the 12 disciples. He was an eyewitness to the work of Jesus. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has authority in what he's speaking about. Okay, we'll keep moving. So the next part, picking up second half of verse one, we didn't get very far. To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so we know Peter's the author. Now we know who he's writing to. He says, I'm writing to the chosen, living as exiles in all these different regions. So when you look up these regions, today this is modern-day Turkey, so it was referred to as Asia Minor, and I want you to think of it not as like, if we're talking about Texas, Turkey's probably a little smaller than Texas, shout out to Texas, I'm from Texas, um, the Oklahoma people are like, really. um, so if we're talking about Texas, it's not like he's writing to Dallas, Houston, and Austin, it's more like I'm writing to all of the churches in South Texas, it's not so specific to a certain city. These are more like regions of an area. So we know that this is more of a general letter. Think of this in contrast to Corinthians, First uh, and Second Corinthians, or like to Timothy, Galatians. Those are more specific. So this is a little bit more general. We also know that these Christians, or the people that he's writing to, that they are indeed Christians. He calls them chosen um, and later on in chapter 2, he'll call them God's people. And that's the term we use for followers of Jesus, people who are Christians. He also calls them exiles, which is really interesting. We're going to get into that later. It's not immediately clear. Is he talking about, like, these are exiles of the state? Like, did the Roman emperor, like, actually exile them? Is this metaphoric? It's not super clear from just this text. We'll come back to that, but we're going to keep going. So picking up in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so he goes from saying, this is who wrote it, this is who I'm writing to. Now Peter launches into this discussion about the person and work of Jesus and how this has intersected the lives of these Christians. He talks about them being, experiencing a new birth into a living hope because of Jesus. He talks about this inheritance that they have, that they've been born into an inheritance. 
if you were in table groups, you guys talked about this a little bit, what is the inheritance? And that is when Christ comes back that we will be co-heirs with him. That what Christ receives in glory, we receive with him eternal life with him. And Peter says that they're believing these things through faith for a salvation that is yet to be revealed. So these things that he talks about, Jesus giving them a new hope, a new birth, they believe these things by faith. That's going to be a big part of this text. Let's keep going. Verse 6, it says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're learning more things about these Christians. We're learning now that these Christians are suffering. They're experiencing trials. And because of how Peter speaks really throughout the book, so this is the importance of context, not just looking at a specific section of a text, but looking at the greater context, we believe that the primary audience that he's speaking to, this is going to relate to the suffering piece, is the primary audience is Gentile Christians. If you're like, I was with you, and now you said Gentiles, I don't know what that is. It's totally okay. It's really simple. So in the ancient world, there's two groups of people. There's the Jews of the nation of Israel, ethnic Jews, the people of God. The Old Testament is full of stories about the Israelites. And then there's everyone else, and they are Gentiles. So unless you are ethnically Jewish, you are a Gentile. So... Welcome to the club. I am also a Gentile, and we believe that these people were Gentiles. There's a couple of different reasons why we think that the people that Peter writes to are Gentiles. He talks about them inheriting this empty way of life from their fathers. If they were Jews, that wouldn't make sense. They would have inherited the commandments of God. He talks about them living as the rest of the Romans did, that they were living kind of like unrestrained lives, they're lying, they're walking in sexual immorality, drunkenness, all these things that Peter talks about throughout the book, and that gives us a clue. Okay, he's not talking about Jews, because Jews were completely separate. They didn't act that way. Um, so these are Gentile Christians, and what we know about Gentile Christians is that they're experiencing suffering because they've left this old way of living, are now living the way that Christ calls them to. They're experiencing suffering because of that. So that's really important because when we think about suffering, they're experiencing it because of their commitment to follow Jesus. That's going to be really important as we look to make applications to understand the context of who this is written to. And the type of persecution is really interesting. So just so you guys know, I did not know this before I started studying. Um, but I, maybe you guys have heard of Nero. If you've heard of Nero, put your hand up. Okay, 50-50, I would say. Nero's this Roman emperor. Um, he was kind of crazy, like documented crazy. Um, and he had this persecution of the Christians that happened in Rome. He was a Roman emperor. Um, and that happened a little bit later in 60 AD. And so scholars don't think that this is the persecution that these Christians in Asia Minor are facing. They think it's something more akin to like social persecution that these Christians are being excluded from like the marketplace, um, that they're being slandered. So there could be physical persecution of them, like thinking like the gladiators or like something really intense. And that persecution did happen 
but more specifically that was in Rome and in other parts of the world later on in the 60s AD. I don't know if that's how you refer to that in AD, the 60s. Um, I don't know if they like refer to that. They're like, they have like a dress up party and they're like, dress like the 70s AD. Like, I don't know, sandals and toga? I don't, is it the same? I don't know. Um, so <laughs> these Christians are experiencing social persecution. They were not being invited to the toga parties. Um, they were not being invited. It was worse than that, okay? I'm not making light of suffering. Okay. <laughs> Let me just move on. Okay. Okay. Come back with me. Come back. Okay. So in verse 8, he says, he's still speaking to these Christians. He says, though you have not seen him, him being Jesus, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Peter is, again, he's speaking to the faith of these Christians. He's saying, you are believing these things about the person and work of Jesus by faith. These Christians had not seen Jesus. And even though they're experiencing suffering, this faith that they have is actually proving the genuineness of the salvation that they're engaging with by faith. So they can rejoice in suffering. This last section we're going to go pretty quickly through, um, but I will read it. It's verse 10 through 12. He launches into this little discussion about um, the prophet. So he says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets, who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. So essentially what Peter is saying, he's saying this plan of salvation, these things that you believe about who Jesus is and the way you've committed your life to him, this has been God's plan from the very beginning. From the garden, with Adam and Eve, God has had a plan of redemption. And Peter says the prophets have prophesied about the coming Messiah. That is Jesus. And you, these Gentile Christians, get to see the fulfillment of those things. And so he says angels long to look into these things. He's saying you're privileged to be on this side of the cross. You see the fulfillment of God's plan. And he's kind of taking them back, even though these Gentiles didn't have this ancient framework that the Jews have, he's reminding them, you have been put into this chosen people, and this has been God's plan from the beginning. Okay, we just did the whole 12 verses. Take a deep breath. Talked about toga parties already. Um, Here are the things that we just learned. We learned that Peter is the author, that he's writing to Gentile Christians in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, that they're experiencing suffering because of the way that they're now living their lives, and yet they're rejoicing and they have faith. So if you're listening closely, there's things I've said that don't seem to really track. They don't seem to make sense. He says three things that as I was reading through this, I was like, those seem like contradictions to me. First he says, like right off the bat, he says that they are chosen, the chosen people, and yet they're exiles. Those things seem to be a contradiction to me. He also says that they are suffering, and yet they're rejoicing. Those things 
seem like the opposite to me. And then the last thing he says is, you have not seen Jesus, and yet you believe in him. Those things seem like a contradiction to me. Um, and so what we're going to do in the second half is we're going to come back to that, and we're going to say, what, how can these things be true? Because those things seem super opposite to me. And what is the impact, both for those Christians and for us now? How do we understand how those things work together? So we're going to take a quick break. The bathroom is inside. Um, or you can stand up, stretch, get some water. We'll be back in like five minutes. We're live. Okay, so we'll jump back into the text. But I have something I'm like excited, nervous for. So we talked about these things, right, that are contradictory. And recently I was on YouTube. Um, I wasn't in like a spiral, but it was close. Um, and I saw this video about this thing. The title was super clickbaity, and I'm like kind of mad that I clicked it because I felt like it, it validated them. But it said eggs, fragile or strong, and I was like, okay, I'll click it. You got me. Uh, that's yeah. I guess I was in a spiral. Um, so I'm like, okay, what could this possibly be? So I didn't know this about eggs. Because I've cracked a lot of eggs in my life. I make brownies pretty regularly. Um, I don't have, like, the, like, one-handed cracking egg down yet. It's coming. Uh, it's in progress. But I've cracked a lot of eggs intentionally. I've also cracked a lot of eggs unintentionally. Sometimes when I go grocery shopping, uh, it's really hot, and I just kind of, like, throw... Hot has nothing to do with throwing it in there. Uh, I just—I don't have a good excuse for why I throw my eggs in the back seat of my car, but I do sometimes. I like a lot of trust in the styrofoam. I'm like, get in there. All right, here we go. Um, no, I don't trust the styrofoam because it's not enough. I've cracked like, okay, one time I cracked six out of 12 eggs. Yeah, so... It's going to be a while before I can put, like, a kid in my backseat or anything. Like, that's going to need some work, okay? So, in my mind, eggs are super fragile. So, that's why I'm justifying why I clicked on this video. And, okay, I just have to show you. Okay. Also, if you don't know, Neighborhood Walmart has these in the six-pack. So, if you're not a big egg eater, just get a six-pack instead of a dozen. You're welcome. Okay, so I have an egg. This is not a hard-boiled egg. You'll just have to trust me. Uh, I don't have time for that. So this is a regular egg. And what this video showed... <laughs> I'm kind of nervous about this. I've tested this, okay? Some of you guys are like, this could go really bad. Um, so the thing is, if you put an egg in the palm of your hand... I'm so nervous. Okay. And you put equal pressure on it... It won't break. You're like, she's an actress. I knew it. I'm not lying, and to prove it to you, I have asked a volunteer, who's probably stronger than I am, to come up and prove. So, everyone welcome Nick Smith to the stage. Okay, so we tested this earlier. Um, also, I tested it with Alec, and it did break. So, the technique is important. So, if this goes badly... It's on Nick, okay? So. It's going to be on you. It's going to be on the front row, it's actually. Be all over this. Okay. Ugh. Okay! Wonderful! It didn't break! Thanks, Nick. 
to the gym. He's stronger than I am. But it's not that hard, Nick. Oh. <laughs> that actually like exploded the bag a little bit. It's on me. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. So this is the this is the contradiction, right? Have some egg yolk, sorry. Here you go. Here you go. This is the contradiction is that eggs somehow can be both fragile, even I could break it, and they can be strong. Even Nick can't break it. Uh, if you squeeze hard enough, you can. The next video I watched was like them going into like a gym with bodybuilders, and those people did it in like four seconds. So it can be done. It's not a perfect illustration. But here, here's the point, is that these things that don't seem to make sense only make sense when you have a key piece of information which I did not have before I watched this video. The key piece of information is that the way that eggs are structured is so that when you apply pressure equally, they like bond together in a way that they don't when, as is needed, a bird only hits part of it and that's able to come out. But it's like a protection over the bird that's growing inside when you apply equal pressure, as in when the mother bird sits on them keep them warm. They don't break. Thank goodness. And then when they need to get out of the egg, it does break. So that key piece of information allows this seeming contradiction to make sense. And so we talked about these three ideas um, that Peter lays out for us that seem like they don't make sense. And I want to tell you why they make sense. So we're going to go through these three different tensions that we see in this text. The first one is right off the bat. Peter says that you're chosen and yet you're exiles. To me, being exiled is the complete opposite of being chosen, right? Like, to be exiled is to be other. You're put, you're distinct from everyone else, but for all the wrong reasons. You're exiled. And when you're chosen, you're also distinct from everyone else, but for all the right reasons. So to me, those things... How can they work together? But Peter calls them both. So back to this idea of Gentile Christians. These Gentile Christians were just like everyone else in Roman society. Peter talks about them. Like we said, they're walking in sexual immorality, lying, drunkenness, unrestrained living. And yet, even though they're not ethnically Jewish, they're not the... Um, ethnic people of God, the gospel, Peter says, comes to them and it gives them an opportunity to have a new identity, to be part of a new people, be part of the chosen people of God. Even in their rebellion against God, they were not walking with God or walking according to his commandments. It says in verse 3, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We see that Peter is echoing language that Jesus used. Jesus has a conversation in John 3 with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him, like, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? You keep talking about the kingdom of heaven is, is here, it's near. How am I supposed to enter this kingdom? And Jesus uses this language. He says you need to be born again. What does that mean? What is Jesus saying? What he's saying is that by the power of the Spirit, to be born into a new identity as the child of God, that it happens because Jesus, by his death on the cross, 
pays the debt that our sin created with God. God is holy, God is just, and so God has to deal with our sin, with our brokenness. He's not just if he doesn't deal with it. But on the cross, Jesus allows us to be reconciled with God because he pays the debt that we owed. And now we are given life by the power of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. So it's possible for Peter to call these Gentile Christians chosen and exiles because they've been given a new identity. They're no longer just like everyone else. They're distinct. They're chosen by God because they have faith in Jesus, and yet they're exiled by the world because of how they're living. The gospel gives us a new identity as the people of God. That's how that tension of being chosen and exiles is resolved. The gospel gives us a new identity. The second tension that we see is that these Christians are suffering, and yet they're somehow rejoicing. I know that this is a contradiction because I know my own default is to complain in suffering. It's not like when I stub my toe, I'm like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I am suffering. Uh, That is not my default, let me just tell you. Um, Silent screams of agony is the default when I'm suffering. Um, But somehow, these Christians are suffering in some serious ways, and yet they're rejoicing. How can that be true? The truth of the gospel is that with this new identity as the chosen people of God, the gospel gives us a new hope. Our hope is not in this world anymore. So these Christians are experiencing all the things that the world places its hope in being taken away. So the things that the world puts its hope in, money, power, success, personality, romantic relationships, regular relationships, um, all of these things, right, that the world would say, put your hope in these things. If you have money, if you have power, if you have companionship, you will be satisfied. But these Christians are experiencing all those things being taken away. They can't make money. They're they're excluded from the marketplace. They don't have good reputations. They're being slandered. They're being excluded. But the reason they can rejoice is because their hope is no longer in those things to satisfy them. Their hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. They're able to rejoice Because their hope is in Jesus and an eternal inheritance that is to come. It's one thing to say that, like, yes, these Christians are suffering and they're rejoicing, but it's pretty different to live it. Um, I was reminded of that this summer. I was in the mountains, the beautiful mountains of Colorado, and I got a call that my friend had died. She was 20 years old. She died in a car accident. She was on her way to work in College Station. And so I went home um, to my small town for the funeral. And they held it in this church that is a little bit bigger than the church that we went to growing up. We played softball together. We were on the worship team together. And this was actually the church that I spent the first 10 years of my life in. My family changed churches. Um, There's like some youth group things happening. Anyways, we were in this church for the first 10 years of my life. 
And this is where they held the funeral because it's bigger than the church that my friend and I went to together growing up. And I hadn't been in this church since, I don't know, it had been a long time since I'd been in this church. And so I'm sitting there for her funeral, and from where I'm sitting, I'm looking at the coffin, and I can see the family, and I can see all these people grieving. I'm grieving. I'm crying. But if I look a little bit beyond the coffin, I see the baptistry that I was baptized in when I was seven. And as I was sitting there, it just felt like this very um, striking reminder of what is true, that even in suffering, even unto death, that because of the hope that I have in Jesus, when I was baptized when I was seven, I didn't fully know what I was committing to, but I keep figuring it out day by day. And as I was sitting there, I was reminded that my hope is not in this world, that we literally can look death in the face and say that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's hope beyond the grave, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And this is the only way that we can rejoice in suffering because our hope is not in life here. Our hope is not in attaining the things that the world says satisfy but never do. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. So we can rejoice in suffering. The last tension that we see in this text is that these Christians don't see Jesus and yet they believe in him, yet they rejoice in him. And it's interesting because Peter saw Jesus, right? Peter was in the room when Jesus is there with the scars from the cross. But these believers are actually a lot like us. They never saw Jesus. They didn't witness the crucifixion, any of those things. And yet they have this faith in Jesus, and it's a costly faith. Like, it's way more costly than it is for me right now. Their faith costs them something. And the truth of the gospel that makes this seeming contradiction able to be true is that we put our faith in the plan and the purposes and the word of God to tell us what is true outside of our ability to experience it, outside of our emotions or our current state where we are in life, that there is a faith that is outside of our experience. Even if we have not seen Jesus, that we have faith in him, like these believers did. And this faith is not passive. It's not like general either. It's not like I believe that God exists at some level, or I believe that like maybe if I'm like pretty good, that like in the end it'll kind of even out with the bad things that I've done, the faith that we have is actually really specific. The faith that we have is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a man, a real historical man, who was both man and fully God, that he was the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, God himself, incarnate, that he came and lived the life that we should have lived, the life um, in accordance with who God is as a holy God. And yet we have failed. We have sinned against God. You, you and I both know, like let's not play games. You and I both know how broken we are. And Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And then he went to the cross to pay for the penalty that our sin incurred. 
that because of our sin, because God is just, there is a debt to be paid. And Jesus is the one who paid it on our behalf. And then beyond just reconciling us with God, that he has beat death. That now our hope is not in this life. That death has died because of Jesus. That the hope of the resurrection is here for us. And now we have a life to be lived in Christ. That faith is pretty specific. And it's not passive. Our hope is, the gospel says that we're reborn into a new identity. That we're now the chosen people of God. The gospel says that now our hope is not in the things of this world, but it is in Jesus, a living hope, because Jesus resurrected. If Jesus was not raised, our hope is dead. But because he was resurrected, we have a living hope. And this faith is outside of our experience. The gospel gives us a faith that's outside of our experience. This book of 1 Peter, as I've been walking through it and studying and prepping, has really come to me in the form of a challenge. And I think it comes to us in that same way. The challenge is to let the good news of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, affect everything about us. It's not Jesus in your back pocket. It's not Jesus who gives you what you want. It is a new identity. It's a new hope. It's a faith outside of our experiences. So tonight, it's really simple. I am pleading with you to consider this faith, this salvation that Jesus holds holds out for you. Maybe you've already dealt with Jesus. Maybe you have committed your life to following him. That when I say a new identity, that's you. You're part of the chosen people of God. And my encouragement to you is to reflect on these things and to be convicted of where we try to go back to our old identity, of where we try to walk in an old hope, in the hope of things in this world, um, where we, we put more faith in our experiences and our emotions than the word of God. I pray that we would be convicted of those things and that we would repent. And for those of you who have not dealt with Jesus, have not decided to follow Jesus, I just want to ask you, why not? Because Jesus comes and his salvation is open. There's an invitation to all, not just the Jews, but to all who would come. Ephesians 2 says that by grace, God's grace, through faith, we are saved. Not by anything that we have done, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The new identity, the new hope, and a new faith that is outside of our experience is what the gospel gives us in Jesus. And if you haven't considered it, um, to jump back to what we said at the very beginning, we said that we believe that the word of God has authority. And there's two things you can do when you come to authority. You can either submit to that authority that is good and right, or you recognize that authority and you walk away from it, and then you bear the consequences of those things. And so Jesus is ready to receive those who would have faith in who he is and what he has done. And the new hope and the new identity and the faith is extended to you, that you would be part of the chosen people of God. My prayer tonight is that verses 8 and 9 would be true of us, be true of me, true of each of you, 
says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for Jesus, for the debt that he paid that I owed to reconcile us to you. Father, I thank you for those who have committed to follow you and who now have this new hope, and this new identity through faith. Father, I pray um, that if there's someone here tonight and this is all new, and they have questions, and maybe some uneasiness, or a little bit of restlessness, Father, I pray um, that tonight that they would talk to someone about it, um, and that again and again, that we would come back to Christ crucified, that that would be true of us, um, and though we don't see you yet, we believe you, um, and we look forward to the day that you will come back and make all things right. Father, we love you. It is for your will and not ours, your glory and not mine, that I pray all these things. Amen.